0: Welcome to Felony Friday, a presentation of the Lions of Liberty
1: podcast. Here is your host, John Odermatt. Felons, friends, and freedom lovers, welcome back to the Felony Friday podcast. This is the show where we focus on injustices in the broken criminal justice system. This is episode 13 of Felony Friday on the Lions of Liberty podcast. So that means you'll be able to find the show notes today at lionsofliberty.com slash ff13. On the show notes page, you'll be able to find links to anything that we talk about throughout today's episode, and you'll be able to find a link to subscribe to the Lions of Liberty podcast on iTunes. If you decide to do that, we really appreciate it. Please consider giving us a five-star rating also. My guest today on Felony Friday is the Arthur Duncan II. The author is an attorney and a convicted felon. He has an incredible story to share about how he overcame a felony drug conviction to become a lawyer in Buffalo, New York. His path to a law degree has been far from typical. He will share that story today, and I think it will provide tremendous motivation for felons and for people of all backgrounds. The author has written a book about this journey titled Felon Attorney. The author, welcome to Felony Friday.
0: Thank you, John. It's my pleasure to be on Felony Friday. Absolutely my pleasure.
1: Well, it's great to have you here, and uh, I'm sure our audience is really excited to hear your story about how you've overcome mm-hmm. such big obstacles. Uh, before we get into your drug conviction and the journey you actually took to overcome that to become an attorney, I just wanted to you know, help our audience and myself to get a little background on you uh, from your beginnings So uh, my understanding is you were born in Los Angeles and you moved to Buffalo, New York. Can you talk about that time period in your life? How old were you when you when you moved back and forth?
0: Uh, Yeah, back and forth is an understatement. Actually, I was born in Los Angeles. My mother was out there um, basically by herself. My father was in the service. I was born in 1969. So he was in the service. He was in Vietnam. So he wasn't around. Um, My mother, she was having trouble out there in L.A. raising me by myself because she was originally from Buffalo. So what she basically did was kind of send me back east, back to Buffalo to be raised partially by my grandparents, um, my grandfather, who was a pastor and my grandmother. And I basically went back and forth almost continuously every year or every other year. As a matter of fact, I did kindergarten in Buffalo. I did first grade in L.A. I did second grade and third grade in Buffalo. I did fourth grade in um, L.A. Then I did fifth, sixth, seventh and eighth in Buffalo. And then I did ninth through twelfth in L.A. So when I say back and forth, like, like I said, that's uh, quite an understatement. I was literally back and forth until I was um, about 19.
1: Wow. Um, so moving literally back and forth like that almost every couple years. I'm just curious from Buffalo to L.A., how did the grades kind of compare to each other? Were you learning the same thing at one school, not the other? Was one school farther ahead of the other one? I was
0: excelling. As a matter of fact, in Los Angeles, they was trying to skip me um, in my early grades, uh, like second, third grade when I was out in L.A. Um, I remember one year they was going to give me the test to skip me up up a grade, and then I had left and went back to Buffalo. So me leaving kind of prevented me from being uh, pushed up a grade. Um, When I was in Buffalo, I would um, be in one class and then I would have to go to a a higher class to copy down their homework because I was way ahead of um, everybody else. Needless to say, academics was never an issue for me. As a matter of fact, I used to do this funny thing that When people used to copy off my um, paper, I used to write the wrong answer and let them copy the wrong answer and then erase it and then then (laughs) write in the right answer. So I was always on a roll all the way through elementary school, 97, 98 average. And so, like I said, academics was never an issue for me at all.
1: Correct me if I'm wrong. You said you graduated from high school in L.A.? Yeah,
0: yeah. I graduated in L.A. I mean, the back and forth was Primarily because one, I missed my mother being out in LA, but I didn't like LA. Um, like I said, my mother, she was out there kind of moving around a lot. We would go from Inglewood to South Central. Kind of like every year I would go back, she would move to a different neighborhood or a different apartment. So it wasn't any roots there. In Buffalo, my grandfather, he owned like five houses on the street that we lived on, and it was nothing but family in the houses. So I would go from my grandparents' house to my uncle's house to my cousin's house, just up and down the street. And then I was like in the same neighborhood. So I would know everybody from going to school. There was a local park right around the corner. So I was much more comfortable in Buffalo. So I wanted to stay in Buffalo for the most part. But then at the same time, I was missing my mother and my little brother out there in L.A. So that was primarily why I was going back and forth.
1: Understood, understood. So you graduate in LA, then you, you move back to Buffalo, and take us through how much time passes between you're out of high school, um, you're working, until you start dealing drugs.
0: Well, let's, before we get to Buffalo, let's kind of, the sure, story sure. kind of starts in LA, because the ironic spin of my story is that I went out to LA when I was 14 to go to high school. I was missing my mother. And then I was talking to my father on the phone a lot. So I wanted to go out to L.A. to kind of get to know my father. So I went out to L.A. when I was 14 and I wound up staying there through high school. Now, this was in the 80s when the gang violence with the Crips and Bloods was, I guess, at its peak. When You have movies like Colors and Boys in the Hood and Minister Society had, came out, you know, kind of during or after the fact, kind of depicted the life in uh, South Central LA. So me being primarily raised in Buffalo, I came out to LA and I didn't know anyone, and I was kind of thrusting through this gang banging community that was going on, and I had to adjust and I had to find my way. So I lived in Inglewood when I went back, which was a blood neighborhood that with, they all wore red. And I was sent to a a crip school where they all were blue. So I would have to go from a blood neighborhood to a crip neighborhood. And at the same time, I would be catching a bus, you know, and catching a bus. You're going through so many different neighborhoods. And from the from these 10 blocks, you may be in a blood neighborhood and the next 10 blocks may be in a crip neighborhood. So there was no telling when you got when people got on and off the bus who you would encounter. I had one particular time where a crip put a knife through my throat and took my jacket on the bus. Wow. So I was dealing with, you know what I mean? These gang bangers, you couldn't even go to the corner store without encountering gang bangers and stuff. So I was steady encountering that outside my home. And then inside my home, my brother's father, he developed a cocaine addiction. And it got worse and worse to the point that he stopped going to work. And then he started stealing things from us. He would abuse my mother physically. Then he would like take from us to whatever he can get his hands on. At times, we would leave the house and we would come back. And when he was still living with us, we would come back home and the VCR be gone, the TV be gone, stereo equipment, whatever he can get his hands on. Then my mother put him out. But then he would still come bamming on the door in the window in the middle of the night, two, three in the morning, trying to get in, trying to get money for his drug habit. Then one day when I was in school, I came home and he had like busted the patio window and came in and virtually like cleaned us out. So, like, this everything, this left the house pretty much bare.
1: How old were you at this point in time? I was
0: about 16, I believe. I was in high school, so I was about 15 or 16 at that time. Then uh, his drug habit got so bad, he had a debt and the drug dealers, basically, they threatened to kill him, me, my mother and my little brother if the drug debt wasn't paid. So um, he had some family out in L.A., so they were able to pay his drug debt and then he left town. Um, But, you know, I mean, all the things I had went through in L.A., it kind of left a sour taste in my mouth. So I kind of like. I left to go back to Buffalo just to visit, just to give myself a break from everything that was happening out in L.A. And I wind up staying. And when okay. I when I got to Buffalo, I met up with my friends that I went to elementary school with. And um, and that's the ironic twist was when um I was hanging with them and I wind up walking with them and standing on the corner with them, just kind of shooting the breeze. And a guy comes up and one of my friends sold him some drugs. And, and I couldn't believe, you know what I mean? My friends were selling drugs. And, and then I told myself, you know, I would never sell drugs because of what happened to me and my family out of L.A. because of drugs. Mm-hmm. But I kept hanging around them. And, you know, they were my childhood friends. Some of them I knew since kindergarten. So, you know what I mean? I have known them for like 12, 13 years. So I kept hanging around them. I stayed in Buffalo. I had my oldest son and then I had to try to take care of him. I worked little jobs, like working at a, like as a bus aide, working in a department store, trying to take care of him. And then I still, I had my friends steadily pulling on me to get involved with this illegal activity. Finally, I kind of gave in and I started selling um, marijuana. And um, I did that for a while. And, but still at the same time, while I was selling the marijuana, the money I wasn't making was nothing in comparison to what my friends were making. So they would tell me, um, well, you need to stop, you know what I mean, selling marijuana. If you're gonna hustle, you need to hustle and get some real money. And it's kind of depicted in my book. uh, One day um, I got involved in a, um, a dice game standing on the corner and I lost all my money. And so I didn't have any money to go and re up and get some more marijuana to sell. And so I basically had nowhere to turn. And so I went and told one of my friends uh, my dilemma, and he wouldn't loan me any money to help me get any marijuana. So instead, um, he gave me some crack to sell. And you know that kind of started it all.
1: Wow, so how long were you selling crack for? And what was your arrest? Were you selling crack, or was that selling marijuana when you were arrested? No, the marijuana was done. It, it, that was done. <laughs> <laughs> that
0: was done. As I was selling crack, I had to uh, develop a marijuana habit to the extent I probably was um, spending about a hundred dollars to two hundred dollars a day smoking marijuana. So yeah, when I got indicted, it was for crack. It was a conspiracy charge, and basically, it was over a phone call. And it wasn't with my friends that I was running with. What had happened was um, my cousin had a, a clothing store on the west side of Buffalo. And um, she developed a friendship with this guy out of the Bronx, New York. He kind of came to me and, you know, I mean, offered, you know, what I mean, some drugs to me, basically trying to get me to buy from him. You know, I didn't need it because I already had my crew and my supplier. So he basically kind of like gave it to me and he was like, try it out, give it to your peoples and see if, um, you know what I mean, your peoples like the quality. And basically if the quality was good, then basically, you know what I mean, I can maybe turn on my crew to him as being the supplier. So I kind of went away from, you know what I mean, the people I was with, and got involved with this guy, and he was already um, being followed by the FBI. And um, that kind of put me on the radar for the FBI, and they tapped my phone. And um, my conspiracy, they didn't catch me with anything. It's just I had a phone conversation with him, and basically the conversation kind of went like this. He asked me how things were going, and I said, not too good. Because the drugs he gave me, it was a lot of baking soda on it. It was pretty soft. So I was getting a lot of complaints. In a nutshell, I just told him that, you know what I mean, things wasn't going too good. But I said, I, I did have something for you and I will see you tomorrow. And that was the extent of the conversation. But when he got arrested, he told the federal authorities what that conversation was about. So that's how I got indicted.
1: So that conversation wasn't recorded. It was just based on him telling the the authorities that.
0: Yeah, it was recorded, but he interpreted what the conversation was about. Okay. If you listen to the literally of the conversation, you know, it has to be interpreted because we didn't say nothing about any drugs. I just said that things wasn't going too good and I would have something for you tomorrow. So it took him to interpret what we were talking about for me to get indicted.
1: Right. Now, did the police try to get you to rat on anyone else, to turn anyone else in? Yes. Ironically, a close friend of mine was
0: on the run for a murder he committed. And when um, I went to to meet with the U.S. attorney regarding my case with my attorney, they pretty much knew everything because they had um, cooperating individuals and they basically sat there and told me everything that was going on. They told me that they knew I wasn't someone that normally dealt with this guy that I, I kind of got pulled in because of the phone conversation. But they wanted to use me as a pawn because of my friend that they were looking for. He was out on a run, and they had been looking for him for about, I think, one about two years at the time, and they couldn't find him. And so while I sat at the table... They slid me a picture and told me this was my get out of free jail card. And ironically, it was when I looked at it, it was a picture of my friend. And they basically told me that if I told them where he was, that I didn't have to go to jail.
1: Right, right, wow. So how long did it take after you were arrested until the conviction? I got arrested in 98
0: and I stayed out on pretrial supervision for two years. So I didn't go to jail until um, 2000.
1: So 2000, you go to jail. And how much time did you spend in prison? I got a sentence of 46 months
0: and I'd wind up doing almost three years. I did. um, While I was in prison, I did a nine month intensive drug program, which took 12 months off my sentence. And so that's how I got out early uh, rather than doing the whole 46 months.
1: So you're sitting in prison. What was your mindset, would you say, while you were in prison? What really got you through that time in your life?
0: Uh, well, the, the funny thing was, well, it's not funny, but before I went to jail, you know, my grandfather was a minister. And, you know, I was raised in church. And, you know, a lot of people, once they get in trouble, you know, I mean, they find God and they turn to God. And, you know, I mean, I wasn't the exception. And But it was something that even when I was, Selling drugs, I always knew I was wrong. That you know, I mean, I was cheating myself and living beneath my gifts. Especially, you know, I mean, as smart as I was, chasing after this instant gratification, and it was always something that I was like, "Well, I'm going to stop after I get to see this amount of money, or I'm going to stop in the new year, or I'm going to stop suing." You know, I mean, I finished this pack. And then something always came along and it, that I kept going and I kept going and I kept going. So two things, one, prison gave me a chance to start over. Secondly, while I was on pretrial supervision, you know, I, I was going, I was starting the fence. I was going to church at times. And, and I was still hustling a little bit because even though I was on pretrial supervision, I still had to pay my bills. I went to church, And a minister prophesied to me, and she said that, um, asked me, did anybody ever try to kill me? And I was kind of cocky with it. I'm like, no, ain't nobody trying to kill me. Because at the time, the crew I was running with was one of the most feared crews in the whole city of Buffalo. And so we were the crew that we would come someplace and everybody would be scared that we was about to do something. So, when she said this, if somebody tried to kill me, you know, I didn't take it for face value because I'm like, ain't nobody tried to do nothing to me. Because she said it like it happened already and I didn't know it was a prophecy. So, about a month later, I was in a club and um, these guys jumped me and they hit me in the head with pool sticks. I got hit in the head about three times with pool sticks. I got I had like cuts on my forehead to this day. I had to have staples in my head. I almost lost my eye. And while these guys were jumping me, one of my closest friends came and saved me and he stabbed like three of them. And so the next day, you know, I woke up in the hospital and everybody was coming up to the hospital and they was ready to go to war and retaliate. And it dawned on me what the minister had said to me about someone's like someone stabbing me. And I'm like, I mean, this is what she saw. The stabbing is, you know, was, you know, what I mean, my friend trying to save me. And at that point, I knew that, you know, what I mean, God had a hand in letting this happen, that this was my wake up call and that, you know, what I mean, I was going to retaliate and this was going to like this. You know, what I mean, just open up, you know, what I mean, a can of worms. And I wasn't for that. And I was like, this is my wake up call. And I was like, I need to change my life. And I had that foundation for me growing up in the church again. And I knew I was doing wrong all along. So with that and also going to jail, that gave me an opportunity to start over. So while I was in jail, you know, what I mean, I stayed out of trouble. There's a lot of stuff going on in jail, and um, I was at Allenwood Federal Prison Camp. Now, a lot of people they used to, the, the prison camp they used to call it Club Fed, and it's for nonviolent offenders. So there was a lot of white-collar um, criminals there, people in there for tax evasion and you know those type of legal crimes. But also there was a lot of mobsters there and um, nonviolent drug dealers. And the kind of worst part of it was that since it was a camp, we were in dorm settings. There was no bars. We were in three different units. And in each unit, you had um, like a dorm setting. You had bunk beds. Then you had like a shelf that divided each cube where the inmates slept at.
1: This was for all three years? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay.
0: And the thing is, is that... And there's, you know, I mean, it's a camp, so there's no fence. You know, you can leave if you want to. Basically, but if you leave, you know what I mean, you get caught, you know, you're gonna get the charge for escape. So there was a so so mentally, you had to basically prepare yourself mentally, you know what I mean, to put like an imaginary fence there, because if you was out of bounds, if you went someplace you didn't have no business to or out of bounds, then you would get an escape charge. Now, also with that was since there was no bars and it was wide open and behind Allenwood prison camp, you had the medium, the low and the U.S. Penitentiary. So there was like a long road and people that would come to visit, the people in the camp would leave things on the road. So people had cell phones, they had cocaine crack, they had weed in there, it was weapons in there. I mean, it was wide open. And the thing about the camp was, since there was no bars, when you went to sleep, there was nothing stopping from someone to come in the middle of the night and stabbing you and doing anything to you. Wow. So people say, oh, you were in a camp. You know what I mean? That's nothing. But I would rather be behind the fence to be able to lock myself up in my cell so I can get a good night's sleep. Because if you had a problem with somebody in the camp, soon as you went to sleep, since there is no, like I said, there's no cell, they're coming to get you in the middle of the night. People were getting like beat in the middle of the night. They set people beds on fire. People were getting stabbed and all this stuff was happening in this camp for, quote unquote, nonviolent offenders.
1: So uh, how did you navigate that? How did you, you know, stay out of trouble so you, know, you didn't make someone angry and they came and attacked you in the middle of the night or something?
0: I don't know. It was a f- few things that got me in, I guess, good graces with the other inmates. When I got there, I, I started playing basketball and um, I was, you know, I'm pretty good at basketball. And then after um, I hurt my knee in prison, I start refereeing the games. And basically, um, those basketball games could be pretty like volatile as far as like people because they had like um, point spreads. And betting on the basketball games they was like long shark in they had bookies i mean everything was going on so the a league so the basketball games they was like betting money and stuff on it and some of the referees the referees were the inmates so a lot of times if you made a bad call or something you know what i mean the inmates would fight the referees or they would like curse him out. He would get into it. The, the games would get canceled and so on and so forth. As I played ball, and I just believed that I carried myself in a certain way, in a respectful way, that that never happened to me. And everybody was very respectful from me. And even the CEO who ran the recreation, he told me, he was like, if, if it wasn't for you, we wouldn't have had no league because everybody seems to respect you. And then after a while, you know, I was lifting a lot of weights and I used to have the black and white striped ref jersey on and they started calling me the weightlifting ref. And then uh, another thing that helped me was I got a job in uh, food service as the first I started as just a laborer. Then I got a job as a cook and then I got promoted to the clerk. I was the clerk for the food service. My job duties as a clerk as the food service was twofold. First thing is I um, made sure everybody got paid. And so I had to write down everybody hours and make sure, you know, what I mean, everybody got paid at the end mm-hmm. of the month. My second job, which was more importantly, was that I had to do the count. And uh, now because there's no wall and no cells, the inmates are counted in the prison camp probably about four or five times a day. So what happens is the alarm goes off, the lights goes on, they shout over the PA that it's count time. So everybody has to go back to their queue to be counted to make sure that nobody escapes. Now, because of that, at times when they do the count, like they would do a five o'clock in the morning count and count you while you sleep. Now, the AM cooks had to be preparing breakfast at that time. So they had to be counted down in food service in the cafeteria. So I did the count that when a person was supposed to be in food service, I would have to turn in their names to be counted in food service as opposed to them being counted in their dormitory. And also same thing with the PM cooks and the people that the fruits and vegetables came in. They had to stock and do all those things like early in the morning. So I was the one that made sure you got a wake-up call and you were counted in this, again, in the food service as opposed to your dormitory. And so uh, a lot of times with that, individuals would come asking me for a favor. They'd be like, "Um, could you put my name on food service to get counted down there today? Or like when the um, holidays came, like if you wanted to get counted, like when we, we would have a Thanksgiving meal, if you wanted to get counted in food service so you can eat early, you would have to come to me and I would have to do
1: it. You were in a highly highly sought after position people would people would come to you and uh, you would grant them favors
0: yeah, and also people was um like we had a salad bar and people would like cook back in the unit and um we would have stuff in commissary like uh, rice and macros and tuna an octopus and stuff like that up in the unit, we would cook it in a microwave. But like when we had like some chicken or vegetables and stuff like that in the food service, since I work for the food service, I would come out of food service and I wouldn't get patted down. But all the other inmates, they were subject to a pat down. So the COs are lined up outside the food service. And if someone was trying to take some vegetables, onions and peppers off the salad bar or have some chicken and try to take it back up to the unit, they would get patted down and it would be taken from them. But I could go up there because I worked in the food service anytime I want to. So it, that was another reason why individuals would look for me for favors. And they would ask me, yo, could you bring an onion back to the unit? And so, you know what I mean? I would be able to bring that up to them. You know what I mean? So, you know, what I mean, I was kind of like the guy no one would mess with because of the basketball league, because of the food service. And then also I had got close to a, some individuals that had did like some hard time and they had kind of worked their way down into the camp and they was highly respected. So you're talking about some individuals that may have got sentenced originally to about 20 years and they had did about 15 already and they was kind of at the end of their bid. And they had um, worked their way down to a camp, so you're talking about they were like highly respected, you know, individuals, and they kind of gravitated uh, a couple of guys that were in that position. I got real close to them, and because of their respect and them trusting me, you know, what I mean, that gave me respect. Mm-hmm. Because normally, someone who just come in off the streets doing three or four years, they were like, "Oh, this guy, he might have snitched, or he's not no real." You know what I mean? Hustler, because he's only doing three or four years. So they wouldn't give you the same respect that they would give someone else. But because I hung with these individuals, I got the respect that they had.
1: That's fascinating. That's a fascinating story. So at what point in time would you say, was it after you got out of prison that you first got the idea in your mind that you wanted to go back to school, go to law school and become an attorney?
0: Well, when I got out of um jail, I had to do six months in the halfway house and I had like a certain amount of time to find a job where they was going to send me back to jail. And I was looking for jobs and I wasn't able to find a job for the first month and a half. It got almost to the point that they was going to send me back. Luckily, my friend of my friend um, was a manager at a um, wheelchair van company. And basically, um, all I had to do was um, pay a, a ticket that I had before I left and then passed the CDL test and I would get a job. And, you know, again, you know, studies, school and studying was always simple to me. So I passed the CDL test and, um, I got a job, you know, driving a wheelchair van, picking up individuals in wheelchairs, um, senior citizens and people with mental disabilities, um, taking them to day programs and, um, doctor's appointments and so on and so forth. While I was there and, Plus, during the month and a half, I couldn't find a job. You know, it kind of dawned on me, like, is this the only job I'm going to be able to find? This is the way I'm going to have to live, making $9 an hour, trying to work as much overtime as possible, killing myself, because we had to take the clients up and down like 10 flights of stairs. Some of the interviews were very heavy, and so it was mentally taxing at times. And so I was like, you know, I mean, this is, you know, I can't do this for too long. You know, I, I know that, you know, what I mean, I'm smart and I can do something, you know, what I mean, better than this. Me enrolling into school, I didn't know what I was going to do when I enrolled into community college. I just knew that if I was going to do anything, it was going to be through education and through, you know, what I mean, me being a smart individual. And I knew that was my strong suit. My strong suit was my intellect. And I knew if I was going to, you know what I mean, be successful in life, it had to be through education. So when I enrolled at um, ECC Erie Community College in Buffalo, I had no idea what career I was trying to pursue. Ironically, I was having issues in the beginning getting accepted because of my felony. And I had to go in front of, I mean, I didn't have to go, they had some committee had to review. My application to get into community college, my PO had to write a letter, and so I got accepted into ECC like at the last minute. So I had to take whatever classes that was just available um, that would fit in my schedule, as far as because I was still working, and that worked out in my favor because I wind up taking two classes with the same professor. I had him for uh, Professor Grabner. I had him for U.S. History and I had him for Sociology. So with that, I was in his class four days out the week, two days for Sociology, two days for U.S. History. So for seeing him so much, we started to build up a rapport. And um, one day I stayed at the class. We were just talking and he asked me, he was like, the Arthur, um, what do you think you're going to do after you um, graduate here from ECC? And after, you know, I, mean, I had developed a relationship with him, so I trusted him enough to tell him. So I told him that I always wanted to be an attorney. Um, that was just something that I wanted to be during high school, you know, but I got sidetracked. And
1: Do you remember where that first came from, that desire to become an attorney? Not really, kind
0: of just maybe TV. <laughs> <laughs>
1: they do make it look pretty cool on
0: TV, don't they? Yeah, yeah, kind of TV. I know in my senior year in high school, I took a business law class, and I liked it. it. You know, as always, you know, individually, you want to be a doctor, a lawyer, so on and so forth. But, you know, I wanted to be a corporate lawyer. I didn't know what it took to be a lawyer. It sounded good at the time. So I told him I always wanted to be a lawyer, um, but I didn't think I could now because I was a convicted felon. And so he asked me, he said, Does your felony bar you from becoming an attorney in New York? So I assumed it did. And if if no one takes anything from my story, you know, I hope they take this, that don't assume anything. I mean, do your research. I'm always I'm telling my kids, never they always say they say this and they say that. And I say, Who was they? And they are probably wrong. And so, you know, I assumed that I couldn't become an attorney with a felony. And so he said, um, I, I don't know about that. Let me look into it for you. So I'm like, sure. So uh, about two weeks later, he asked me to stay at the class. And he was like, the um, Arthur, I looked into uh, you becoming an attorney with a felony. And I have good news for you and I have bad news. And I was like, well, what's the good news he said, the good news is that there's no bar for you becoming an attorney in New York with a felony. And I said, well, what's the bad news? He said, well, the bad news is that you can graduate here at ECC with your associates, go to four year, get your bachelor's or get into law school and graduate from law school in three years. Take the New York State bar and pass it. But he said, then you have to go in front of what is called a character and fitness committee. Like I said, everybody has to go in front of it, but it's going to mean more to you because you have some past legal issues. Now, this character and fitness committee is comprised of local lawyers and judges. And basically, they're going to have to decide whether you have, you're have trustworthy enough or have the moral fitness to be able to practice law in New York State and whether you're trustworthy enough to admit you to the bar. And he said, and they can tell you no. So basically, you can... Do all the prerequisites and get in front of this committee after you take the bar, graduate from law school, pass the New York State Bar, and they can tell you no. And he was like, it's up to you whether you're willing to take that chance.
1: I take it you're willing to take that chance. That is a, yeah, that's a risky proposition to put all that work in to risk having it all turned away. That would be uh, very, that'd be devastating, I would imagine. I didn't have nothing to lose.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, worst case scenario to me was I would have a Juris Doctorate. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that was the worst case scenario. And I just, you know, what I mean, I had faith in God that he wasn't going to, you know, what I mean, take me that far and me not being able to be admitted. So you know, I stepped out on faith and I did it.
1: That is impressive. Uh, that right there is an impressive story. Can you talk about just a little bit about just the application, being a felon, the application process to law schools? Is that something that, you know, each law school was, would, you know, would they call it out on an application where you'd have to state that? When you would make an interview, would they ask you about your past? Just expand on that a little bit.
0: Yeah, well, the key thing is, when I said trustworthy, is that you have to disclose, you have to tell everybody, you cannot keep it a secret. So my law school personal statement started off that the first sentence was, I am a felon. So it had that shock to it, you know what I mean? Because to get into law school, besides your grades and your LSAT, you have to write a personal statement. Basically, Mm -hmm. it could be about anything, yourself, what you, you know what I mean? And so my personal statement was about, that. my first sentence was, I am a felon. And it kind of just talked about me growing up in L.A., the things I went through and then basically what I could bring to the table. Because, you know, I believe that because I was on the other side of the fence, you know, I mean, I'm going to bring something different to a law school um, classroom. So in criminal law, you know, I mean, you guys are talking theory and I'm going to bring some realism to what you guys are talking about because I was on the other side of the fence.
1: So, right turn a negative into a
0: positive yeah, so, that's brilliant yeah, so I talked about that in my personal statement and so the thing of, again about the application was you have to just dis- disclose everything every I had to get at my disposition for every time I was arrested and send that in with my law school application along with my grades my um I had to get three letter recommendations so that was important to, to try to start building up a, a rapport with professors and people in the community along the way uh, that would be in your corner, you know, what I mean, for each step and for each step going from my four year to trying to get into law school. And then ultimately, when I went in front of the and fitness committee, I had two letters from two judges, um, a letter from my pastor, a letter from a New York State Assemblywoman and a letter from my boss. So, you know, those things, you know, what I mean, was big in regards to those people being able to vouch for me, you know what I mean, along the way. So with the law school application, again, I had to disclose all my um, arrests and um, convictions, which I had besides the felony, I had um, I think two misdemeanors besides that and uh, I think a violation. So I had to send all that stuff in with my application.
1: So be honest. That's good advice for any application process, applications for employment, for any sort of schooling. Always put everything out there and be honest. 100% agree with that. So, where did you go to law school then? After I graduated from
0: ECC, I went to UB and I did quite well at UB. I graduated from UB with a 3.5 GPA when I was still working full time. I had a wife and three kids. So, when I applied to UB Law School, I kind of just thought, you know what I mean, it was a no brainer, you know what I mean, I'm a hometown kid, you know what i mean i'm mm-hmm. I'm a family man, I'm working. I did my undergraduate studies there. I got a three point I think four gPA. This should be a no brainer. And I actually one of my wife's friends, because my wife is a hairdresser, one of my wife's friends works for the FBI. And she introduced me to one of the deans at the law school. She wasn't the dean of admissions, but she was a dean of, um, uh, I forget, she was the dean up there, uh, I think alumni relations or something. So she made a call to the dean of admissions, and I got an interview with the dean of admissions, met her, and um, the interview went quite well, and I really thought that um, I was going to be able to stay home with my wife and kids and get into UB Law School. My first year out of undergrad, I got on waiting list at UB Law School and I got denied. I wasn't really discouraged because I said, oh, I got on a wait list. You know what I mean? I'll just reapply and hopefully I'll get in next year. Second year, I reapplied, got on the wait list again. But the second year when I applied, no, well, let me go back. The first year I applied, I applied to, like, any law school I could. I got a waiver for applying to law school, and I really wanted to see, could I get into law school with my felony? Mm-hmm. So I got into um, Dayton Law School, University of Dayton Law School, Detroit Mercy Law School, Toro Law School in New York. So I'm like, okay, you know what I mean? Even with my felony, I know I can get into law school, but I really want to stay home and go to UB. So when I got into these other law schools, I would send that information to UB saying, look, you know, what I mean, these other law schools want me. You know, what I mean, I'm a viable candidate to get into the law school. So, again, that first year I got the wait list. I didn't get in. So I reapplied. Mm-hmm. Now, the second year, I'm thinking to myself, you know, I can't really leave my family, but I'm going to try. I'm, on, I'm only going to apply to the closest schools to UB. Uh, University of Buffalo, just in case I don't get in. So I applied to Syracuse and Cleveland State, and they were the two closest law schools um, to University of Buffalo, because, again, University of Buffalo is the only law school in Buffalo. I didn't get into Syracuse. I got into Cleveland State, and I got on a wait list at UB again. And ultimately, I didn't get in. So at that point in time, I had to convince my wife <laughs> for me to leave and get an apartment in Cleveland, and leave her with my three kids, for me to go to law school in Cleveland. That's a huge obstacle right there. Yeah, wow. yeah. So I got an apartment in Cleveland, and um, my first semester at in law school in Cleveland, I was coming back to Buffalo. It's about a three and a half hour drive from Buffalo to Cleveland. So after my classes, I would get right on the I ninety. From Cleveland come straight back to Buffalo because I you know I had my responsibilities here in Buffalo with my wife and family but what I wasn't doing was studying because I was you know what I mean as soon as I would finish class in Cleveland I would come back to Buffalo to take care of my family. So my right. first semester at Cleveland I almost flunked out. I got three D's and two C's. And all the while, my hope was that I could do well enough at uh, Cleveland that I could transfer back to UB. But after my first semester, I was like, you know what I mean? I thought that was dead. I was like, I got three D's and two C's. I'm just trying to stay in law school. Forget trying to transfer. I need to get my grades up just to stay in law school. So the second semester, um, I buckled down. I maybe came home maybe once a month after that. And I got my grades up and I wind up getting two A's and I think three B's. So I was fine as far as um academic probation at um Cleveland Marshall. And I didn't think I was gonna be able to get accepted as UB as a transfer student. That summer, my wife's cousin grew up in um, the projects with a local judge and um, she was able to call the judge and get me an internship for the summer. And that judge, she was very instrumental with me. I applied again to UB as a transfer student and she was very instrumental with um, me getting accepted in UB as a transfer student. So the next year or so, I was able to um, get into UB uh, my second year as a transfer student, and I was able to stay home with my wife and kids.
1: So you were able to get your law degree from University of Buffalo, right where you grew up and, and went to school, well, where you partially grew up, between there and LA. Yeah. It's, a, it's an outstanding story. Can you talk a little bit about, you talked about that, what's it called, the uh, the committee, the, the character committee? The character and fitness committee. So what was it like getting through that barrier with the felony conviction?
0: Oh, my goodness. First of all, the first time I took the bar exam, I failed by three points. And I failed the bar because I couldn't type. <laughs> so they give you a um, choice to type it or, or write it. So... Um, I'm taking a bar and it's like thousands of people taking a bar in this big convention center. And, um, I'm one of them finger typers and I got the two people on side of me, just like typing away. And it kind of gave me anxiety. Like these people next to me are typing paragraphs while I'm, <laughs> I'm plucking away one, you know what I mean? One letter. your Yeah. Yeah. And it got into my head and you know what I mean? It's a time factor and, I mean i just and i almost the first time i almost got up and left you know what i mean and it was a two-day exam and i failed it the first time and they only offer it twice a year And, and I seen i failed by um three points and then i um i had the new york bar examiner send me my essays and what i typed on the test I looked at it. I'm like, I couldn't even understand some of the stuff I wrote, <laughs> and I only failed by three points. You know what I mean? So the second time I took it, I wrote it, and it was just like natural. It was so natural, just sitting there, just writing it out and handwritten. So I I passed it the second time, and then I'm um, um, going in front of the character and fitness committee. You know, what I mean, I was very very nervous. You know, I went downtown. Um, had my little hand, my little pocket hand Bible in my hand. And what they do was they interview everybody one by one. And so it was probably about 70, 80 people there to be interviewed. And as I sat there, they were calling individuals one by one. And I just knew that my uh, application was on the bottom. And I said, you know, I got issues. I said, I know they're going to call me last. So I wind up sitting there for about two hours until they finally called me with probably about two other people in the room. I went into an office with a guy and I was pleasantly surprised that he was like, he said "The Arthur, um, everybody speaks very highly of you. He said, I looked at your application. I called your boss and everyone I talked to spoke very highly of you. He was like, um, and your pastor's letter was phenomenal he started talking about, like, asking me what church I went to. And I'm sitting here thinking, I'm ready for them to, like, ask me all these questions about all my, you know, my and convictions and everything. And he's not even asking me anything about, you know what I mean, my past.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And so I even start trying to explain. And I, at one point I was saying that, you know, I take responsibility for all my things I did in the past. And he was like, the Arthur, we you know, I mean, we already know about what you did. And so he was like, um, he said, I've been doing this for a long time. and He said, if I was you, I don't think you have anything to worry about. He said, what you did was a long time ago. And he said, it's obvious by your track record and all these letters of recommendation that you've changed your life. He said, but the one thing is, he said, because there's it's a felony. He said, I think you do have to go in front of the committee. And basically the committee would be um, instead of the one on one, it would be, you know, I mean, members of the the committee convening together and asking me questions. Right. And so um, he told me to go back in the waiting room and that he would go back and talk to the committee, the rest of the committee, and they would call me in the back. So I'm sitting there again and it was me and maybe three other individuals that had to go in front of the, the convening committee. And I remember a guy behind me talking about telling another guy, yeah, I got a, he was worried about a fight that he got into, a disorderly conduct conviction that he had, uh, I think, during law school. And I'm thinking, this guy is worried about that. If You know what I mean? If he only he knew what I'm worried mm-hmm. about. So the funny thing was the same guy that interviewed me came back out probably about five minutes later and called my name. So I'm thinking, oh, here it is. Here we go. They about to the grill. me. Here we go. <laughs> he calls me and instead of taking me in the back with the rest of the committee, he takes me back into the same room where we had talked. And he says, um, the Arthur, um, I talked to the committee. You're good. Um, they're admitting you, you're fine. Go on home. And I just kind of like, I was in shock and I, I said, what? He said, go on home. They okayed you. You're fine. That was the gist of it. And three months later, um, I was sworn in in Rochester.
1: That had to be an incredible feeling. And listening to you talk through that process, you know, it had to be also an incredible feeling to have someone not just look at your felony, look at your body of work, look at you as a person, look at your relationships, your references and all the work you put in, in law school and judge you on that and not judge you just based on uh, your previous felony conviction. As I know, a lot of felons have to deal with that as they go out and look for jobs and uh, throughout all aspects of life. So that had to be very, very rewarding to to see that happen. Yeah.
0: I mean, and the hard part was, I mean, even after, you know, I mean, I straightened out my life. You know, when I got out of jail, all I had was high school diploma and, and no job skills. And I was basically released back into the same environment that I was before and as I said before, when I got in trouble, I didn't get in trouble with the crew I was hanging with. So they were still out in the streets hustling. So when I got out of jail, they were picking me up from the halfway house, giving me a couple of bucks to put in my pocket. And so basically they was thinking that, you know, once I got out of the halfway house, I was going to go back to hustling. And, and, you know, they would say little smart remarks like this is what you want to do. You know what I mean. You're gonna work. You know what I mean. You know why are you not going back to hustling. And you know what I mean. And I, I promised myself, as well as God, that you know what I mean. I wasn't going back to jail for nobody, and it's definitely not you know what I mean for material things. And but along the way, even I had you know what I mean. Some things happened to me that kind of tested my resolve. One time, I was on my way to Charlotte with a cousin of mine, and he picked me up from the airport. And um, when we got to the airport, he turns to his friend and hands him a bag full of of crack at the airport. So I'm like, and I'm on probate. No, no, I'm on parole. I think I was like my last year at UB, undergrad, trying to, you know what I mean? Straightening out my life. Mm -hmm. And we're at the airport with drugs. And I turned to him, I was like, what is that? And he's like, oh, don't worry about it. I got a stash spot. I'm like, a stash spot? This is the airport. They're going to bring out the dogs and everything. I could not believe that he had jeopardized, you know what I mean, more than mm-hmm. himself, than me, knowing I'm on parole. And, you know what I mean, and it got so bad, I wanted to like, just to jump out the car, but then it, the airport police was like right there when we was like driving. And that would have brought attention to us. So I managed to survive. I mean, that encounter. Then I had um, another time that I went to a party and my brother got into a fight with this guy from another neighborhood and I was trying to break up the fight. And basically I was in the middle of it trying to make my brother and this other guy like go home. And my brother wind up reaching over me and punching the guy in the face and I had a plate of food because I was leaving that I was taking home with me. And when my brother punched the guy and knocked the plate of food out of my hand, the food like hit the ground. And I jumped over to the left side to avoid the food splattering all over my clothes. And the next thing you know, someone starts shooting. Oh, wow. And my brother got shot. A friend of mine got killed and my cousin got shot in the shoulder, all on the right side. So when that plate hit the ground, if I would've jumped to the right side, I would've got shot. But by God's grace, I jumped to the left side and I was spared. And this was, again, this was after I had got out of jail, married, family, working, going to school. But you know what I mean? These were still things that in my environment, that, you know what I mean, I got, you know I mean, caught up in, you know what I mean? So, you know, it's still, once you change your life, it's still that environment that sometimes, you know what I mean, bad things can happen. And there was tests of, like, of my resolve and I said, God was just testing me to see if I really had changed, but it, he kept, it, things just kept happening around me and I was able to make the right decision that allowed me to, you know what I mean, to to go along my journey to be successful along this path. Cause I already had separated myself from all my friends and I wasn't hanging with them or anything, but still at the same time, and I didn't want to be like scared to go outside or scared to not be able to enjoy myself.
1: Right, you can't hibernate inside. Yeah,
0: yeah, but things would just happen. And and then another time, one of my friends I grew up with, I, I knew him since kindergarten, he turned 40 and he had a, a party for him turning 40. Now it was in my old neighborhood. My wife didn't want me to go. And I was like, well, babe, I'm just gonna go down here and I'm um, gonna you know, have a beer, wish him happy birthday, and then I'm gonna leave. Well, lo and behold, I go down to the bar. The bar is very crowded. I feel uncomfortable, you know, cause I don't go out anymore. Um, so I wind up going outside and going across the street to a store that was open that another one of my friends had a corner store. So I go into the corner store just to talk to him, just to get away from the bar situation. While I'm in there, um, a fight breaks out in the store. (laughs) Not in the bar. I get away from the bar to go to the store to get away from the bar and the fight breaks out in the bar. I mean, it breaks out in the store. And I'm like, Ain't this something? <laughs> Let me get out of here. So, and the guy that was fighting was the guy who was his birthday. His girlfriend got into a fight. So the my friend that I went, went to go see him for his birthday, he runs across from the bar into the store and they beat this guy up in the store and the, you know, the chips is all over the place. They're knocking down shelves and everything. Now this is a guy again, I've known him since kindergarten. He was one of the people in my crew and he's fighting someone. Now the old, the Arthur would have been right there beating this guy down with him. But again, this is the new the Arthur And I'm going home. So
1: that's amazing. So I sidestepped the ruckus. I got in my car and I took it on home. That's amazing. You really changed the way that you react to situations and it helped you to navigate um, things where maybe you might have misstepped before. Truly, truly an amazing story altogether. The amount of obstacles you've overcome, I've lost count (laughs) throughout this story. Unfortunately, we're almost out of time. I did just want to ask you one more question. And give you a chance to talk a little bit about uh, why you wrote your book and give our audience, it, let them know where they can find it to purchase it. So what motivated you to write your book, Felon Attorney, and uh, where can people find it?
0: Oh, well, my motivation behind writing a book was, this was my testimony. Um, along the way, and I, I got into law school and I started thinking back, uh, this is really about to happen. You know what I mean? And going from someone who stood on the corner and sold crack and carried weapons and to be able to be in a law school in this whole new environment around judges and politicians. And and I'm thinking this is really happening. And then when I got close, everyone was like, uh, Arthur, you got a story to tell. You got a story to tell. Some people thought I was wasting my time. You know, this is, you I, know, I always say that it was like, you can't, I, they never heard of nobody becoming an attorney with a felony ex-drug dealer. They thought I was wasting my time. So along the way, as you know, what I mean, as I started this journey, got into law school and start interning for judges. And I was like, this is about to happen. And this is a testimony. From, you know, what I mean, from this is God has blessed me to go through all this. And people need to know that you can succeed after some mistakes. And there's a lot of misnomers that I, you know what I mean, that I wrote the book for, like one thing is people think you can't get financial aid with a felony. You can. I got it. You can get it. I spoke at a, a community college because they was telling their criminal justice students that once you get in trouble, you can forget about becoming an attorney. So there, there is no telling how long they was telling their students that. So I spoke to a whole criminal justice department about that. They were basically telling them kids wrong. You know what I mean? So again, my book it's to motivate to inspire I mean I graduated from law school at age 43 with a wife and five kids I mean even if you don't have no legal issues in the past this tells you you're not it's never too late to you know what I mean to go after your dreams 40 50 go back to school you know what I mean pursue your dreams you know what I mean also for the felon you know what I mean do your research see what you can do you can't do don't just assume that you can't do something because you have a felony look into it and I hope this would inspire them, you know what I mean, not to give up. And also for people that's in, in a position to hire an ex-felon. You know I mean? Use mm-hmm. my story as an example. Say the Arthur changed his life. They gave him a second chance and look what he was able to accomplish. So don't judge that felon because of his past legal issues. Give him a chance. Where can people find the book? Uh, my book is Amazon.com. You can find it on Amazon.com. Okay. If you want a a signed copy, go to my website, www.felon-attorney.com. Again, that's www.felon-attorney.com.
1: We'll link to that in the show notes as well.
0: Yeah, I'll send you a signed copy. But if you just want to order offline from Amazon or Barnes & Noble or even my publisher, mascotbooks.com, you can order offline also.
1: Well, thank you very much, The Arthur. Thank you for taking some time out of your busy schedule to share your story. It was awesome. And I'm sure it's going to help a lot of people, hopefully, and speak to a lot of people that are going through some things, maybe currently about to go into jail or they're, you know, they've come out of jail and they're out of prison, but they're sitting there with a felony and they feel limited. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, you've taken some of those limitations away from them today. So thank you for that. Thank you. It was my pleasure. This show is a little bit longer than most shows. But it was absolutely worth it because we got to hear each individual circumstance that the author had to overcome in order to reach his dreams. As I said in the opening of this show, this show is not only about reforming the criminal justice system. It is also about providing positive examples of those who have personally experienced the grind of the criminal justice system and found success on the other side. Much like previous Felony Friday podcast guest Michael Santos The author has found success after prison. Thank you everyone for listening. You can participate and contribute to Felony Friday by connecting with other liberty lovers you can do this by joining our private Facebook group, The Lions of Liberty Forum. Simply search Lions of Liberty Forum on Facebook, the group will pop up, and we will get you added as quickly as we possibly can. Also, don't forget to follow The Lions of Liberty on Facebook and Twitter and check out the Felony Friday archive at lionsofliberty.com/felonyfriday for all previous articles and podcasts. As always, guys, thank you for listening. This is John Odermatt signing off. Always remember to keep your head up and the fires of liberty burning.